0: I don't know if you've ever taken a foreign language, but if you had, whether it's in high school or college, you you may have learned enough that you might be tempted to utilize it when you happen to go to a country where it's spoken or run into somebody who speaks it and you find it's not so easy to translate from one language to another. Uh, I've discovered that I know just enough Spanish to be dangerous. A few times I've been in Spanish-speaking countries, and and I'll say a little phrase or something. Uh, I guess I'm showing off, and then they start rattling off so fast I can't even distinguish the Spanish word they're saying, let alone translate it into English. And so then I got to say, uh, "No comprendo." Well, a few years ago, our church group was going to Reynosa, Mexico, for a mission trip. Uh, we typically went around. The beginning of Lent, and so it was not uncommon to be there for Ash Wednesday, and it so happened the pastor that was with the church associated with the mission where we built homes every year, uh, had learned I was coming and asked if I would be willing to preach on the Wednesday night they come together. So I agreed and tried to wrestle with what do you say to a group of people that I I can't uh, relate to their circumstances hardly in any way, and what can you say that can be a good word for them as well as for our group that was there to work, and I came up with this. Kind of neat idea, I thought, that was a play on words that I thought might relate to their situation as well as our church group. And so I wrote out the meditation. And it so happened we had somebody very fluent in Spanish on our church staff. So I said, you know, I'd love to use a few of these key phrases and say it directly to the congregation instead of have just rely upon that interpreter. So she took it and, and translated and came back and said, Jerry, I'm sorry, but that phrase, that play on words you want, There just is no Spanish word that explains that. I could translate it this way, but they won't get what you're trying to say. So I had to scrap the whole thing and start over. Well, that's the same kind of exercise that Bible translators have to do all the time for us. And often there's a word in Hebrew for the Old Testament or in Greek in the New Testament that takes almost a paragraph or at least a few sentences to say the meaning of what that one word means. Uh, and if they actually translated that way, our Bible would be too big to carry around. So that's the challenge we face. And, and that's what I want to focus on in this series, Words That Matter, is a couple Hebrew words. Today we'll focus on chesed, that relates to God's steadfast love. Next week we're going to focus on ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit. Then We'll take a break for you Sunday, come back, and we'll look at hamartia, the word for sin in the Greek. And then we'll look at sozo, the word... To be healed or to be saved. So I hope you'll find that interesting. I hope it'll add to your understanding of the scriptures as you read them. Our word today is chesed, uh, or sometimes it's spelled with a ch or a kh. It's still pronounced chesed. It, the second part of it rhymes with bed. The first part, you find that by finding that in between sound between a k and an h, but you've got to bring it from the back of your throat. I'm sure I'll butch it several times. Today, so just bear with me. Hebrew is not by strong suit. This word is used 297 times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. 297 times. It is used most often to share the, the best and most important attributes of God, so it's critically important. And I'm sure you have come across this word without knowing it. You might be familiar with this psalm, the 136th psalm. It's a common one shared as a liturgy for church. Its origin was to be a liturgy for the Hebrew people. So let, let's just practice it today. Let's, let's share it as, as like a, a refrain called a prayer. So let me share the first part. If you'd share the second line that's a little bit bolder, let's, let's uh, give it a shot. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. We and oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Who alone does great wonders. Who by understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth on the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. and And the moon and the stars to rule over the night. This psalm keeps going for 26 verses with 26 refrains, just as you shared. And every time you said steadfast love, that word is chesed. That single word here is translated into two words for our behalf. You might be familiar with this particular passage of scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, for he leads me beside still waters. Is it ringing a bell with you? What is this psalm? The 23rd Psalm, maybe the most famous song. If you go down to the 6th verse, it says, Surely goodness and mercy, chesed, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Uh, It's describing the mercy of God here. And that that mercy of God pursues us. It chases us. It comes after us. God hunts us down, it's saying to us. And, And then one more verse that I'm sure you've probably heard before. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, but what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, chesed, and to walk humbly with your God? You notice three different passages and three different translations. It shows you how many layers of meaning there is with this single Hebrew word, chesed, and how vital it is for us to grasp and and appreciate what it can say for us. Now, to define it is so difficult. There's just not one single English word that is the best or closest. Each time you look at the context, and even when you write down that word that's going to be used in translation, it's it's never enough. It is used to describe the positive attributes of God most. It's also used to describe the kind of ways we're called to relate to one another. One Old Testament scholar says it's the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to describe the New Testament concept of grace. And yet, even that is not enough because the word grace, especially as we tend to use it in English, doesn't connote the sense of committed love, the sense of commitment and loyalty that is there. And so you'll find in many different translations, words like grace, mercy, loving kindness, love, several different ways, loyalty. But you got to be careful with that word loyalty because For us, when we hear that word, sometimes it has a stuffy sense to it of obligation. And there's never any negative connotations with this word. It's always positive, always done out of love and out of desire. They say the two most common ways this word is used is, first of all, to describe when someone is in trouble and there is something that can be done by someone else that can make their situation better. And if they don't, they're going to be in a big heap of trouble. And so that entity, that group, that person, or even that God is one that steps in without any obligation whatsoever to make things better. The reverse side is when you have the opportunity to share chesed, love, with someone else. And if you do so, you'll help someone who's going to be in a big heap of trouble if you don't act, but still there's no obligation that you do so, but you do so anyway. That is chesed love. Paul Miller has written a book on love and he speaks of this chesed love. Uh, let's let's listen to him talk about it.
1: The topic of love was forced on me by my wife some 20 years ago uh, during a really hard time in our marriage and our family's life. One night we were going to bed and as we were walking up the steps, my wife said to me, do you love me? And I said, yes, I love you. And then she asked me at the top of the steps, do you love me? And I thought, what's going on? I just thought you wanted reassurance. And then she asked me a third time, do you love me? And at that point I got irritated because I realized she didn't want reassurance. She was doubting if I loved her. Her question began to sit on my mind And for the next month, my prayers went from sort of gritting my teeth, God help me to love my wife, to kind of a quieter, God help me to love my wife, to even a quieter, God would you show me what love is. And that began a 20 year journey of exploring, uh, understanding and falling in love with the idea of love. One of the key things at the heart of that was discovering the biblical idea of Hesed love. The idea of Hesed love, it combines two ideas, the idea of love and commitment. So in other words, my love for you is not based on you. It's a setting of the will to love, regardless of how you respond to me, and even remarkably of how I feel. It limits the person, and that does a couple things. One is it just strips your ego. It's just self dies in the activity of love. But probably the best thing is that it draws you into union with Christ. And you get to taste God in the activity of loving. And by far, that is the best part of love.
0: So Hess said love, and especially he speaks even more about how we live in a society in which freedom is one of our highest values. Free to do as we want. But chesed love sets that aside for what is best for the other person. You can't really define love without talking about the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth in the Old Testament is four chapters long. I invite you go home and read it today. You can do so in probably 15 minutes. It speaks of chesed three times. It's used, that actual word used in the, in the book, but the whole book is about chesed love. Everything about it is expressed and explained what it looks like. If you're not familiar with the story, it, it began a, a thousand years before Christ, during the time of the judges. And there was a drought, and so the family went to Moab, a country adjacent to, to Israel, a place where the foreigners were very much hated. And it's about three women, Naomi, the matriarch, and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpha and Ruth. Naomi's husband passes away, and then not long thereafter, both her sons pass away, leaving these three women to fend for themselves. For us to appreciate, we need to understand that in those times, women had no economic power whatsoever. And so Ruth is looking at a life of being a beggar. So out of her has said love, she says to her daughter-in-law, they need to go home to their mothers where they can be taken care of, because she's going to head back to Israel and take her chances, and she knows how much the Moabites are despised by her own people. They both protest. But finally Orphan relents and goes home, but Ruth stands by her. She knows what situation she's looking at, and she spent all this time. Those three women built this household. They made the clothes. They made the food. They spent hours together, and she was not going to abandon Ruth and leave her to that future alone. And so in another expression of chesed love, she shared a phrase you might have heard at a wedding, but it's actually words said from a mother-in-law, from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, and she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so she followed Ruth back home. When they came back to Israel, Naomi was obviously trying to bank on the hopes that her deceased husband's family might reach out and, and bring them into the fold. They had a law called redemption law There were some obligations to do so, but it was one that required them to voluntarily make that decision. When she explains this to Ruth, Ruth says, well, let me go and I'll lean in the fields, in Boaz's fields, and she does so. And, and Naomi's done her work to kind of share the word, the kind of person and and the character that is there in Ruth. And so Noez has, has heard of her reputation. And so he explains to his servants, go ahead and leave a little extra grain for her to lean and pick up. She brings that extra grain home, and Naomi sees the situation and realizes there are possibilities here. But as the harvest comes near the end, she realizes uh, time is running out. And so she gets bold. And she does something that is kind of hard to believe, is even in our Bibles, right? And those of you who know the story, you're smiling with me because it's kind of an interesting story. Basically, Naomi gives Ruth instructions on how to seduce Boaz. She tells her to go in the middle of the night to the greenhouse and while he's sleeping, uncover his feet. But we know that means more than just his feet. She's basically making herself available to him, basically making a plea for him to take her as his wife. And then Boaz expresses Chesed because as he experiences situation with integrity, he says, no, by law, I need to go speak with a relative who is closer by kin to your deceased father-in-law than myself. When he does so, he works things so that he does bring her in. And so this story ends up with a happily ever after as a child is produced. And the interesting thing in the scripture, it says that this child was Naomi's child, even though it was Ruth that gave birth to him. And so the story has a moral to it, one that is told by Jewish families every year, once a year, this story is retold. And, and that moral is that, that God favors those who act in righteous ways to express that said love to one another. That child, it just so happens, becomes the grandfather of King David, who eventually will be the ancestor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A beautiful story of chesed love. Well, chesed love is the best description we have of how God relates to us. There's a passage from Exodus that I think helps put that out very vividly for us. I won't take time to read it all, but you'll notice a couple of things about this. One, it makes mention that, that God is a righteous God. And this passage shows how God is a God of justice at the same time as a God of mercy. And it says that, that the sins will be punished. Those transgressions will sometimes even be visited upon. Those consequences will visit even the third and fourth generation, which may sound harsh to us. But then it goes on to say that God's mercy, his chesed, love, goes for a thousandth generation. Three to four verses a thousand. It expresses well how God related to his people Israel. Because he he embraced them. He gave them the covenant to Abraham and said, you will be blessed so that you can be a blessing to others. And so they became a special people. But time and again, Israel forgot what they're called to do and be, to be that blessing. They forgot that God of justice. And sometimes their society got so far off track where they forgot they're called to bless other nations. And so God's righteous judgment would come for a time but he always brought them back into the fold. A prophet is sent. His action is taken, and then his mercy is expressed, and he receives them once again as his people. That is how God is with us. God is like a parent who unconditionally loves us, and even though we we may be allowed to experience the consequences of our actions, they're always there for you to come back to. God is that loving parent to us. And so I believe we live in a time in which we need that chesed love. We need to embrace it. We need to understand it. We need to live into it. That is how our God is with us. And therefore, that is how we're called to be for one another. And gosh, if there was ever a time that needs it. We live in a time in which we have multiple options. Turn on the TV and you have a thousand channels to choose from. You notice how hard it is to find a a common show even? to talk with with one another because we are watching different things. We see different movies. We watch Netflix. We often try to converse and we have nothing that bonds us together. The economics of our time allows us to do our own thing, our own way, as we wish, as we want. There's not that sense that we're in this together. You know how rare that seems to be anymore? Do Do you know what I'm talking about? And so we live in such divided times, divided by our politics divided by the news channels we watch, divided by the websites that we read, divided by our economic situation that causes us to have our own opinions about public policy. We complain about Washington, but really it's just Washington is a reflection of who we are as we surround ourselves with people who are like us, people who think like us, and so we don't know how to appreciate and utilize the diversity which should be a strength for us. And even with our church, Every time we baptize a child or receive a new member, we say these vows. We, say that we recite these to the people that come into our church. We say as members together with you, in the body of Christ, in this congregation at I Methodist Church, we renew our covenant faithfully to participate in the ministries of the church by our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. We say that we're in this together. And yet we know out there are issues that will divide us in a heartbeat. I don't think that's what God wants. Our God is a God who has chesed love for us and calls us to have that same chesed love for one another. That loyal love, that committed love that's there for us in spite of our differences and somehow finds a way to come back together and live out faithfully what we're called to be and do. Let me close with a story of someone I thought models that so well. It's about Irma Watkins. Irma was an older lady in my congregation in New Albany. She and her husband had been married 55 years. Her husband drove a water truck. Yes, would you believe a water truck? And the knobs that had cisterns, and he would deliver that water for them to fill back up because they didn't have city water out there in the knobs. She was a schoolteacher, and together they had a family. They were there for one another always. And then Todd suffered a stroke, a very unique stroke, that didn't take away most of his physical abilities, but it made him about like a three-year-old with his mind. He could feed himself, but that was just about it. She had to do everything for him. For eight long years, 24-7, she was his caretaker, She'd get help to come in so that she could go to church, so she'd go to the quilting group, so she could do the grocery shopping. But otherwise, she was there 24-7 for him. I remember one time he went to the hospital. We thought this was going to be the end. He was asleep. I was there visiting with Irma, and I stood up to pray over Todd. And she looked at me, and she was very emotional. And she said, you know, Jerry... People have been telling me for years that I should put him in a home so I could live life. But I just couldn't do it. And she said, you know, I don't regret a minute of it. And I knew Irma, I knew she meant that. Those weren't hollow words. And I remember at that moment, as I prepared to pray, Lord, help me to love like that. That is Hesed love. And we need more of that in our world so that our families can stick together, so that we can be the church and then show the world what Hesed love looks like, and so that our children can see what committed love should look like. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the way you love us. This word does its best to try to explain what that looks like to us, but we know language falls short. Help us to live into that reality for one another, for this church, for this community, so that we may be the people you call us to be. In Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, amen.